Good morning. I do bring you greetings from First Presbyterian Church in Uptown Charlotte. I'm glad to be back here in what is a special place in my life. I've been in this room a lot over my years um, as a youth conferee at the Montreal Youth Conference and as a planning team, planning team member. I've been here during my summers on staff in the clubs program, though probably not every Sunday. Um, I've been here as a child and at a missionary conference before my mom and dad took a call to London, England. I've been here as a part of my dad's installation uh, as Montree Conference Center's president. Happy Father's Day, Pops. And today I'm honored to be your preacher. I am on sabbatical this summer, and so I am blessedly removed from my email and my phone and my social media and any and all Zoom meetings and evidently my razor. But I did manage to get word to Carol Steele that our scripture for today will be from the eighth chapter of Luke's gospel. And let me set the stage for what you will hear me read in a moment, just before the place where I will pick up in the reading, we find Jesus and his disciples had been generating quite the buzz in Capernaum, a Jewish city on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee that had become Jesus' home base for ministry. Rather than leaning into this emerging fame, Jesus decides he and the disciples will actually take a boat and go to the other side of the lake, to a place where no one had heard of him, and that was decidedly not Jewish or Gentile. As we approach our scripture today, please join me once more in a word of prayer. By your spirit, O God, breathe life into these ancient words that they may live in our hearts, our minds, and our imaginations, so that we might not just hear them, but be shaped by them for the living of these days. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. From Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As Jesus stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and would be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. 
When the swineherds saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. And then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed, and then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. Holy wisdom, holy word. So if you think that this is a strange story, with a naked, demon-possessed man living in a graveyard, and then an exorcism transfer thing into a herd of pigs who act like lemmings and run down the hill into the water. If, if you think that is a strange story, just consider what the disciples must have thought. First, from the disciples' perspective, things were going great back at the home base. The movement that Jesus had started was finally catching notice. The disciples could tell that Jesus was making an impact, and the results were measurable. Bigger crowds, more enthusiasm. The news about this different kind of rabbi was was traveling to other Jewish towns. It's not that the disciples were expecting to have success from a worldly perspective when they dropped their nets and said yes to follow Jesus. Jesus told them that nothing was guaranteed, but now that they were gaining attention, well, it was kind of nice. So what does Jesus do? He stuffs them in a boat to get away for a while, someplace new where they would be completely anonymous. Second, since the disciples were, of course, Jewish, it must have been notable that the place that Jesus took them was about the most inhospitable place you could imagine bringing a Jew. The disciples kept kosher, of course. They were concerned about knowing what was clean and what was unclean. Keeping kosher was more than just following a few casual rules in Jesus' day for Jewish people. Keeping kosher was a way of life. And literally, everything about the place that Jesus took them on this random voyage across the Sea of Galilee was unclean. The country, the Gerasene country, was Gentile and therefore unclean. The graveyard was unclean. The naked man was unclean. The pigs were unclean. This was the place that Jesus wanted them to come after leaving the comforts and the successes of home behind. And third, Jesus came for one guy. 
I don't know if you noticed, but this morning's passage starts when Jesus and the disciples land their boat on the shores of the Gerasene country. And they don't go too far from there because it ends when they put right back out to sea to go back to Capernaum. And what did they accomplish? There were no adoring crowds. There was not a meeting with a foreign dignitary. There weren't There wasn't even really a strategy. It was not exactly a high-impact visit. Jesus got out of the boat, encountered this disturbed and naked man in a graveyard, rid him of his ailment, and then was asked to go back home. And I wonder what the disciples whispered about on their way back across the sea. All of that for one guy. Jesus, of course, didn't care about what his disciples must have been thinking. What mattered to Jesus was the person that he encountered. There's this exchange in this morning's story that I find to be tender, almost poignant. In the way the gospel writer tells the story, Jesus, if you notice, Jesus barely speaks. More often than not, we simply hear an account of what was going on, but right before Jesus sends the demon-possessed man, the demons into that herd of pigs, Jesus breaks the silence and he asks a question. What is your name? What is your name? The man answered, Legion, because he was possessed by many demons. Legion is a it's a it's a it's a play on words. A legion is a measure of Roman troops. It's like a company or a squadron. He said legion because he was possessed by many demons. And he had been living with those demons for so long. Close to, but not quite in the community of the town nearby. He had been that way for so long that he had forgotten who he was. He'd become identified by his condition, not by his humanity. I know it's easy to get lost in the bizarre details of this story with demons and pigs running to their watery graves, but but take a step back. What happens in this story is that a person who has lost himself is found. Because Jesus sees beyond what seems hopeless and asks for his name. Reading the scripture and preparing for this sermon brought to mind a person that I met when I was a newly newly minted pastor in Richmond, Virginia. His name was Rodney. In 20 years of ministry, there have been others, but Rodney was the first person I had a pastoral relationship with who lived with a severe mental illness. We saw each other on Mondays from 10.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Second Presbyterian Church's walk-in ministry, a, a ministry to the city's homeless and working poor. We served about 150 people each week. Some of the faces changed, most of them did not, Rodney was certainly a fixture. Each week, the guests would line up 
outside the Hawes building door, and I would unlock the bolt, and Rodney would be near the front of the line. The first thing they did, our guest did, was come in, and for 90 minutes, they would they would either cool off or warm up, depending on the season. They'd pour a cup of coffee with about half, half a cup of sugar in it as well. And then after 90 minutes, they spent an hour in the dining room where they would eat a bowl of soup and a bologna and cheese sandwich. I would see Rodney around Richmond. He was one of the city's homeless population that refused to sleep in a shelter. He had gone through too much trauma. There were too many rules. He had a reputation among the other regulars at walk-in ministry. Most people steered clear. Sometimes because Rodney was ranting and angry. Sometimes because Rodney smelled so rancid. Sometimes because he was annoyingly chatty. Outside of those two and a half hours on Monday, Rodney was a nuisance, an eyesore, a square peg in a round hole. But on Monday, he was human. I was introduced to Rodney by a woman who I will call Martha. Martha was our key volunteer, i.e. the person who was really in charge. In her 70s, she was a longtime member of the church, and I was her 26-year-old supervisor who was the new associate pastor for youth and mission. Martha, a retired social worker with an undergraduate degree from Brown, would always come downstairs after I unlocked the doors at walk-in to see if Rodney wanted to come have a chat in the library for a few minutes. Early on in my supervision of Martha, she invited me to join them in the library, and that is where I first got to know Rodney. He has schizophrenia, Martha told me later. I've only seen him on his meds once, and he's quite remarkable, actually, but he's non-compliant with his doctors, and he's been in so much pain, I think the most important thing we can do as a church is to help him feel welcome when he is here. Later, Martha introduced me to Beth, another church member and walk-in volunteer who I discovered had retired early from a law career because of her severe bouts of depression and anxiety. And soon after that, Martha introduced me to Jenny, the, the lead soup cook, Jenny, I discovered, had learned to live quite effectively with a pronounced case of obsessive-compulsive disorder. And Martha, she had her own story too, which she told me a few years after we met. She had spent two different stints on a psychiatric hospital ward on suicide watch when she was a young mother. That experience was the catalyst for her going back to get her master's in social work. You all know this, but it takes effort, commitment, patience, and perseverance to care for people who live with mental illness or who battle through a mental health crisis. It is oftentimes inconvenient. But what I learned is that there was a reason that 
the particular members of Second Presbyterian who worked and volunteered at the walk-in ministry were there and why they chose to serve the church in that way. It is because they knew personally how important receiving that kind of care could be, what it could mean for their lives. And yes, it's important to know the other resources that we need to help those who are in a mental health crisis, therapists and doctors and inpatient care and our own boundaries to attend to, but all that is secondary to making a commitment to meet people where they are and to see them as people. I know Anne's already done this, but here's my confession. In that season of my life and ministry, I remember thinking that Martha was wasting her time and mine. It didn't take long before I started to count down the minutes before Rodney and the rest of the walk-in guests would leave. After all, I had important business to attend to, meetings with new strategies for growing the youth group, a fresh approach to stewardship that I couldn't wait to impress the committee chair with, marketing our programs to newer residents in the downtown neighborhood where the church was located, Honestly, I grew impatient with the tedious, time-intensive practice of tending to Rodney on Mondays, so much so that I dreaded it, I'm ashamed to say. And here's something else. I still tend to gravitate toward those parts of ministry that feel efficient and strategic. And I see the same tendencies in many of my colleagues and in many of my leaders in my home congregation. Maybe, maybe your community of faith is the same as mine as we emerge out of COVID. There's no small amount of anxiety about recapturing the momentum that we had before the pandemic and setting goals to help us feel effective and building back what we feel like we have lost. And that stuff is important, but it's not as important as we make it out to be. In my time in the walk-in ministry, Martha taught me something true about what it means to be the church. And one of those things is that wherever the church gathers, in the sanctuary on Sunday morning, at a soup kitchen on Monday, in an auditorium in Montreat on Father's Day, in a smelly 15-passenger van with teenagers hurtling. Wherever and however the church gathers, there are inevitably and always people who live with mental illness or who are pushing through a mental health crisis. There are people who feel trapped and helpless because their minds betray them. There are people who long to be seen. Another thing that Martha taught me about the church is that beyond anything the church does or how big our mission budgets are or our worship attendance numbers are or our capital campaigns are or our programs or our strategic goals, beyond any of that, there's perhaps nothing more important than understanding that at its essence, 
The church is a place where people are seen and welcomed and known not by their successes or their conditions or their disease or their paychecks or their mistakes, but as they're seen as human beings created and loved and cherished and redeemed by a God who sends us into the world to point to the good news of Jesus. We know, don't we, all of us, many of us on a personal level that we are living in the midst of a tsunami of a mental health crisis. And it was true before the pandemic. It's just that now it's more obvious. And here is where My friends, here is where I find gospel. Because I believe that in many ways, the church of Jesus Christ is poised and positioned for this moment. For when we do it well, at our essence, the church exists as a community of care. Comprised of people like Martha that is is designed and built to tear down the walls of stigma and shame and ask the question that Jesus did. What is your name? In fact, that is the first question we ask people when they enter the church. I ask it a lot in Charlotte, standing by an eight-sided white marble font, sometimes to parents who are holding their babies, sometimes to adults, who have found their way to the faith. I asked it a few moments ago to Blake and Nahi. What is the name of your child? What is your name? And then, remember, you are a child of the covenant, sealed by the Spirit, treasured in the heart of God. My friends, there are many things the church might do. Lots of ways we can measure our impact. But reminding people of their name, of who and whose they are, that is a gift you cannot find anywhere else. That is what the church can be. And that is what so many people In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.